2: From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Rightsis, and this is City Lights. In 2015, comedian director and Daily Show field correspondent C.J. Hunt was filming the New Orleans City Council vote to remove four Confederate monuments. But when that removal is halted by death threats, C.J. set out to understand why a losing army from 1865 still holds so much power in America. What results is Neutral Ground, an impeccably researched and moving documentary laced with wit and precise comedic timing. A former teacher himself, Hunt hopes the film will one day be incorporated into American classrooms. Earlier this week, City Lights host Lois Reitzes spoke with Hunt over Zoom, and she started their conversation by asking Hunt whose background is Black and Filipino, when he started thinking about his own Black identity.
0: I understood I was a Black person, you know, from age four on, but I grew up in Massachusetts and New York. And it wasn't until I moved to New Orleans in 2007 that, you know, right after college, that I thought about the strangeness of Confederate monuments because I really hadn't been exposed to them before. You know, we have our own you know, subtly horrifying monuments to, you know, Columbus and and other colonizers in, in the North. But, you know, one of my first phone calls home to my dad upon moving to New Orleans was, oh my God, dad, they have a they have a giant statue to Robert E. Lee and the streets are named after Jefferson Davis. And that was shocking and, and horrifying for its own reason in moving here.
1: Hmm. Let's talk about the title of the, your documentary. What does the neutral ground describe?
0: The neutral ground is the name New Orleanians have given to the grassy median between two streets. And whereas in other cities, it might be where someone spins a sign for a going out of business bed, bath and beyond. In New Orleans, it's a place where the community gathers and parties. It's where People fill the neutral ground and meet up for Mardi Gras, and that's where they stand and watch parades. That's where they would be barbecuing. That's where everyone parks their car when it's, you know, in in times of storm. So this is a community space. It's also where the Confederacy chose to build most of its monuments. So I think the film is asking the question, what does it mean that, that our communal space is literally occupied by folks who were enslavers and, in New Orleans, white militias who attacked the government to teach Black people a
1: lesson? Mm. And the disconnect comes out so beautifully in the film because here, New Orleans, is the cradle of so much we love about American culture Mm. that is a result of black lives. The music, cooking, language, and dance, and yet you know, surrounded by the names of streets and this raging, ongoing controversy about the statues. In the film, many of the protesters we see believe that removal of these Confederate monuments would be rewriting the past. That This was their history. Repeatedly, you bring out... They're saying the Civil War was fought over secession, not slavery. CJ, I'm curious about your reactions and how you responded to these comments.
0: You know, I, I, I think you're right. And I think New Orleans really highlights that dichotomy of being such a Black city, of giving the world jazz and half of the food we like. You know, these are from Black people but we also have this giant concentration of monuments, giant monuments, 60 foot tall monuments to the Confederacy. And if you look across the country, what is the common denominator for the cities where you see the highest concentration of Confederate monuments? New Orleans, Richmond, Atlanta. These are black cities. And for folks who honor the Confederacy, It has maybe never occurred to them what it means that they live in a city that is mostly Black people because of slavery and has its highest places of honor dedicated to those who try to perpetuate slavery forever. It has never occurred to them what it must feel like to be a Black child going to a school named after a man who would have enslaved them, to be looking up at these things every day. And I think that's just how part of whiteness works that when you see your history reflected on pedestals everywhere, the notion of simply moving that across town, moving that to a cemetery, moving it to a museum, feels like destruction to you. Feels like how is my history even intact if it's not literally on a pedestal? And I think that was what we saw, you know, in the wake of the Charleston massacre as take them down, NOLA, and activists were saying, we've got to move these things. As our white mayor, Mitch Landrieu, heard the call of activists and said, yes, I will use my power to move these things, people thought that moving them was destruction of their history.
1: We are not terrorists. We do not destroy the past. We
0: are not allowing this to deteriorate. It is Muslims, Jacobins, and
2: communists who have bent on destroying memory and rewriting the past? It should be clear to everyone, North and South, that it is not that it is not that it is not sensitivity. Where do we stop with all this? Do we go all the way to Washington and take down every memorial there? Yes. 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 This is our history,
0: and and I think that that is helpful for us to see as a reflection of of how far people have come from history. You know, 1860 to 1861, these same Confederate leaders were out on Front Street talking about slavery. You can look up any of the secession documents on a helpful website called (laughs) google.com, and you can see that these guys thought of themselves as the new founding fathers. And just like America has a Declaration of Independence, every state had their own declaration of the reasons they were leaving. These things are called the Declaration of Causes. And you Google these things and you see it's full of slavery, 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 slavery. But after the war, that was embarrassing. And they wrote a new story about freedom and states' rights. And they didn't just write it in textbooks. They put it in our in our landscape. And it's been there so long that some people have forgotten that that's just a version of a story.
1: There's a very powerful point in the film that features a scholar with you addressing how the false narrative, the lost cause, was romanticized, this idea of Southern gentility that we see in movies like Gone with the Wind and how that further exacerbated the issue.
0: Still today, when so many people think of the South, they don't think of a terrifying place where most whites are desperately poor because their government cannot provide for them, where the entire system runs on on the brutality and forced labor and murder and rape of Black people, where even poor whites are part of slave patrols where entire towns go out and hunt down black people, where where people are bought and sold, where poor whites are told that they have to be for secession as well because if these slaves get free, they're gonna come and, and defile your daughters and kill all of you. You know, like we don't think of that terrifying place when we think of the old South. So many white Americans think of a place of Magnolias and, you know, live oak trees and beautiful plantation women, like that is an image written by the defeated South because they could not bear the shame of what they lost for slavery, for fighting for slavery. And those films, they could not bear it. And we've seen that in our own time. We've seen a big lie be born in our own time by folks who could not bear a loss. We've seen them say early voting is actually voter fraud, and a fair election was actually a coup, and an actual coup that we did to attack the Capitol wasn't a coup, it was patriots. So we've seen that own rewriting in our own time. So just imagine how that rewriting took place in the defeated South when Southerners had lost a third of their men you bet that they would write a rosier story that doesn't have any complications and doesn't have any ugly parts. And that story has stuck around so long that some people think it is history.
1: A moment ago, you made reference to the leaders, the Confederate leaders, literally being on pedestals. I'd love for you to talk about your background as a comedian and something that comes out early in the film is your use of puns. You talk about monumental decisions and concrete examples to talk about race. (laughs) Yes, you with the right sense of humor, CJ. How did your background as a comedian, as a writer, help? you create this documentary in a way that is perhaps more palatable for people to understand or accept.
0: I mean, number one, thank you for picking up those puns. You know, (laughs) we we finished this film in the time of COVID. So we hadn't really seen it with audiences until we debuted at Tribeca. So there are things that I've like even forgotten are part of the humor that people laugh at. I'm like, oh, yeah, we did write that. But, you know, you use the word palatable. I would probably use the word accessible of we want this film to be accessible to everyone. I want this film to be taught in schools. I want this film to be accessible to an eighth grader who has only learned from his teacher that this was about states' rights. I want this to be accessible to a 70-year-old who grew up in a time when all of the textbooks were pre-approved and dictated by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. You know, I want this film to be accessible to black folks who do not need to see the receipts because we know that these things to be true from our families. That there is a need for that in documentary some of my favorite documentaries about the prison industrial complex about the history of slavery about the prevalence of Jim Crow. I have to like mentally steal myself and get ready to watch these and sometimes I don't get to watch them when they first come out, because I know what that ride is going to be so with this. I wanna ease people in. I want people to feel like they can trust me. I want people laughing. I want people feeling like, oh, this is gonna be a fun documentary. And then all of a sudden they find themselves at Charlottesville. Then all of a sudden they're themselves face-to-face with documents where the Confederacy is saying, Mississippi firmly identifies with the cause of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. I want them then face-to-face with the white teenagers who are now baby boomers, who are screaming at and spitting on Black children just trying to go to school. I don't want folks to come into the film going, okay, here comes the reckoning. I want them to be like, this is a fun, interesting film about history that just so happens to have the central question, can white Americans speak the truth about what their past is in this country?
1: Another part of what makes the film accessible, is some of the tongue-in-cheek aspects that come through in the tone with your use of music. In the beginning, I felt like I was watching a Hitchcock movie. There's this Hitchcockian suspense in the musical opening, you know, a little bit reminiscent of of Psycho. Would you talk about your use of music, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Our composer is named Sultana Isham. I'll say it again, and I want everyone to Google it. Sultana Isham. This woman is a a Black, Southern composer, violinist, multi-hyphenate, who is just incredible. Composed for us. She composed for the Alvin Ailey documentary that is, you know, burning up the festival circuit. And I feel grateful every day that we were able to have her on this project before she was unavailable because so many projects want her. She's a genius. She created this entire score. She will be delighted that you said that the beginning is Hitchcockian because, you know, I had in my mind, uh, you know, I want this to be really epic. And I was thinking of all these old classical references and what she was showing me was actually references that inspired her from Hitchcock films. Because for her, she's like, this is a horror film about white supremacy and the violence that not admitting that white supremacy exists exacts on a society. You know, so many horror films are spent with a hero going, there's a monster in the house, there's a monster in the city, and everyone telling that hero, there's no monster, there's no monster, we're not sending police. So that was what she keyed in on the beginning. And then she's able to, you know, really take us on this incredible soundscape. And she's also a musical scholar. So she's pulling from traditions of You know, when you're hearing something that sounds like Ashok and Farewell and other Civil War tunes, those are originals that she's doing that pull from those musical traditions. And when you're hearing the sound of a slave rebellion, she's pulling from African traditions to give us a sound that is both African in nature, but is also subverting a white supremacist score and actually subverting the same notes that you've heard early in the film. So I want this film to be taught in schools, but I think musical scholars will forever talk about this score and talk about the work of Sultana Isha.
1: Oh, CJ, you have just made me feel so validated. I mean, my original background was in music. That was my education. So it's kind of the lens. Through which I still experience, but it just worked so magnificently with your documentary. It's a whole
0: other level that the documentary is working on, that when you're watching, finally, at minute, you know, 52, 500 days after New Orleans has said we are going to take, take down our monuments and white supremacists have kept them from doing it, when you're finally watching Black people celebrating these monuments coming down, you are also listening to the same score that you heard Sultana give us during Reconstruction.
2: Power to the people. Power
1: to the people.
2: Power to the people. Power to the people. Power to the people. Power to the people. Power to the people.
0: Power to the people. Power to
2: the people. Power to the people. All right, all right. Give yourselves a big hand, you
0: I want the film to feel like time travel. I want the film to feel like you are watching two historical moments compressed. I want you to feel like you are are watching Black freedom then and now in the same moment. I want you to feel like you are watching the white insurrectionists who undid reconstruction, working also in 2015 to undo our movement forward with these monuments, also attacking the Capitol riot. And what I cannot say with words, Sultana is saying with music.
2: Filmmaker CJ Hunt speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. Hunt's new documentary, Neutral Ground, airs on ATL PBA this Sunday. We'll be back with more of their conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE, I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, thanks for listening. If you're just tuning in, we've been hearing from comedian and filmmaker C.J. Hunt, discussing his new documentary, Neutral Ground, with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Let's continue with more of their conversation now. This film started in
1: 2015, you finished in 2020, you started with a theme of tragedy, the Confederacy and monuments to it coming down. You had no idea what was going to unfold in terms of murders of innocent people in the next five years, a political climate more divided than any other time in our history, other than the Civil War. So how did you know when it was time to stop recording?
0: We were asking a simple question in 2015. We were asking a question that even when I told people they thought, oh, what a cute little municipal issue. Our question was, how hard will certain white Southerners hang on to four objects that honor enslavers? right? This was was being debated in city council, the same place where they're talking about zoning and paving the streets. This is an issue of, can white Southerners be honest enough about history that we can move four objects from here to here across town? We did not know that Donald Trump was going to be elected within a few months. We did not know that he would rise to power on a myth about how America was greater before and how it's greater without all these brown people who are ruining it. We did not know that that Charlottesville was coming. We did not know that the Capitol riot was coming. We did not know that even now Republicans would struggle to name insurrectionists as insurrectionists. We didn't know any of that, but we had a sense of there is something deep and dark to the way people will hold on to what they believe to be their past. Race is so complicated in this country and there are so many conversations that we are not yet able to even have consensus on. And in this film, we're not asking about defunding the police. We're not asking why the video that our children have seen more often on Facebook than cat videos are videos of Black men being executed by police officers. We're not talking about reparations. We're not talking about how broken the schools are. We're talking about what should be a lowest common denominator, which is, can we get symbols other than enslavers on the highest pedestals in this city? That should be so basic. And the fact that folks trying to hang on to that brings us to a place of terrorists again and again, attacking our government and taking the lives of people in broad daylight, I think that reminds you that the story that we tell about the past has a price. This isn't a theoretical debate about, oh, well, what do I think history is? And what do you think history is? This has a price. The murderer who took nine lives in Charleston in a church was emboldened by a story about our white past and the glory and what black people are taking from us. The murderer who ran his car into a crowd and killed Heather Heyer injuring many more in Charlottesville a few years later was motivated by the same lie. So if we do not get this lie right, it will continue to draw blood in our country. And that is the same thing that Frederick Douglass was warning us about in the 1870s. He was saying, if we do not get this right, if we do not remind people that the late war had a right side and a wrong side, we are missing an opportunity to make treason odious. And unfortunately, the tragedy that you are saying is that we did not listen to Frederick Douglass then. And I fear that we are not listening to the hundreds of thousands of black and brown and queer and allied protesters who are making the same claim now.
1: You bring an interesting aspect into the film about those who contributed to the false narrative about Southern history, the so-called lost cause, and how that was romanticized, in that you emphasize women had the most to do with that, CJ. Would you talk about white Southern women as those who faced rebuilding and coming to terms with losing the Civil War?
0: If folks want to read about this, you should absolutely follow the historian in our film, Karen Cox, who wrote Dixie's Daughters and so many other really great books that are really illuminating about the role of white Southern women in this history. But I think when we think of white supremacy and the history of racism in this country, we're thinking about men, right? We're thinking about Bull Connor and we're thinking about segregationists, men pulling freedom riders out of buses and beating them or we're thinking about the KKK riding through the night. We are not thinking about women, right? We're not thinking about the the photos of women, grown women shouting and spitting at black school children who are just trying to integrate schools. We're not thinking about what this film you know, illuminates, which is that the widows and daughters and granddaughters of the fallen Confederate veterans formed these organizations which then consolidated into the United Daughters of the Confederacy, whose job was to vindicate the Confederate generation. They've built hundreds of monuments in this country that you can go to a Confederate monument, unfortunately, still standing in your community. And you'll probably see that this was built by and funded by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And this was the same group who was putting learning standards in schools and making sure that you know their standards were reject a book if it calls Confederate soldiers traitors, reject a book if it does not suggest that slaves had a good time in slavery. This is the same group who said that the slaves are lucky to be here and if it wasn't for us, they'd be climbing trees in Africa. So they built white supremacy into our landscape and into our schools. And they did this at the price of their own freedom, that these are women who instead of pushing for the vote, instead of building freedom for all women, they dedicated their entire lives to nursing the broken egos of their men. And I think on a personal level, what I hear from folks who respond to Karen Cox's work and respond to the film, I think there are some women who really understand that idea that instead of working for their own freedom, they're working for the broken ego of some man who cannot get over his loss. And what is built is something that is oppressive and is a lie and and, and builds their legacy into the landscape and into our schools as white supremacy and and us having the clarity to talk about women's role in white supremacy, having that clarity when we've seen 52% of white women, you know, throw their hat in the ring for someone who both talks disgustingly about women and who says abhorrent things about black and brown people. I think we need to speak with clarity about white supremacy and that that is being built not just by men.
1: And in that portion of the film, again, comic relief, if you will.
0: <laughs> You're. Right. I. I will. Okay. I, I will, and I must. The comedy in this film is a pressure valve. It's almost like the water is boiling, and once the water is boiling with enough horror, we need to let off a little bit of steam, or else we're going to explode or go crazy. And I think. Black folks understand this because it is our tradition in humor of we laugh to keep from going insane, that once you get a certain amount of horror in this film, then the humor comes to, like, give us all a breath before we have to move on to the next chapter of
1: horror. Survival mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. So it is after this grim statement about the United Daughters of the Confederacy that you say, fun fact, White supremacists are never kidding. Again, with that tonal balance you strike, going back to conversations with your dad on film, he conveys his anger and says that his goal was to wake people up. You kind of focuses in on the Aunt Jemima maple syrup in that shot when he's fixing breakfast. Intentional? I think in
0: documentary, we are just trying to capture as many things that we think are strange and interesting and dichotomous. And then later in the edit, those things put up against sound become significant. So we were cooking pancakes in the scene with my father because my friends at Firelight Media, which is a collective of filmmakers of color that are creating you know, all of the incredible films that you're seeing come out, they saw some of the early footage in this film where I'm putting a mic in people's faces and going, would you be okay with PGT Beauregard statue if we took the Confederate off and just kept the horse? You know, it's, <laughs> it's this like superficial, type of comedy. And they were like, hey, I think you need to go deeper. I think you need to talk about the reasons that you as a mixed person from the North are, are so hung up on white supremacy. And I was like, well, that's all we talk about at my home. And they said, okay, go and talk with your dad about it. I think you need to go dig deeper there. So I went home and as anyone you know in your audience knows who's, who's done journalism or trying to record a parent, you have to give them an activity so I said, you know, dad, let's just make pancakes. And as we were shopping for syrup, I was like, oh, okay. It's insane that most of my options for syrup are slaves. So I'm going to grab one of these bottles and we'll bring it. And so my, my DP, Pavel Hannon, just picked up a shot of it. It didn't mean anything to us then, but hearing my dad talking about the ways that racism has built itself into society in ways that we don't even notice, in ways that we would prefer not to acknowledge, that shot of Aunt Jemima pancake mix and syrup, that made sense there. It is literally on our breakfast table. I mean, not anymore, they changed it, but you think they only learned it was bad in 2020? You know, you think it only took the public lynching of George Floyd for them to realize that they've been capitalizing for a century on images of slaves and and putting that at our breakfast table? The fact that Aunt Jemima exists, the fact that it is something that we all grew up with, a slave who sells us those good pancakes, I think means that this lost cause concept isn't just esoteric. It is a story about the past and a story about what is comforting to us and what is authentic to us that has made it all the way to the breakfast table. And that was made by a Madison Avenue ad company. We've been sold a lie about the old South and it is not the South that built this lie alone. It is the entire country. And it has been with our families at our breakfast table as long as we can remember.
1: You also make a reference to breakfast table talk with your dad. Mm-hmm. And you're chuckling with that talk, as you recall his visit to your class on the MLK holiday. Did that really happen in that very way, what you discuss?
0: One thing that has been really comforting And surprising in rolling out the film and talking about the film is that this film is so specific to my personal experience you know as a black and filipino kid growing up in the white suburbs that's not a giant demographic (laughs) that we can you know gamble the film on who's the film for it's for black and filipinos who grew up in the suburbs and had blonde hair but my specific experience i think other people are seeing their own stories so you know, my dad is what I call a oh, look what they've done to us dad, a dad who continually talks about the ancestors, continually talks about our history and what has been done to our people. I think that is common in Black households. You can raise a white child without specifically talking about your history, and they will still be able to move through the world safely. That is not the case with Black children. You have to tell this is where we come from. This is what has happened to us. But I've had Jewish friends who are like, hey, CJ, I have a look what they've done to us dad. You know, like my parents tell stories about the Holocaust and stories about this pogrom and stories about our people wandering in the desert, and I have Korean friends who say, yes, I also have a look what they've done to us parent, so the idea of a parent talking about what has happened to the ancestors. And the idea of a kid having heard that story so many times that you're just laughing or shaking your head at this terrifying story. I think that that is common to a lot of people's breakfast tables. And to answer your question about that speech, yes, that is exactly how it happened. He came as the Martin Luther King speaker to my rich, preppy boarding school and said, on this day, I want you to think about the prevalence of lynching in America means that there are some of you in this audience who statistically would have remnants of a black body part in your attic. This was something that would have been taken by someone as young as your grandfather or father. And we need to think about what our responsibility is and how you might react to that. And I was mortified at the time My white classmates were like, is CJ's dad a Black Panther? Why did he make us feel so bad? Like, why is he so militant? And I was really mortified by that. But now I'm really proud of that because I don't think he was trying to scare them. I think he was trying to give them a frame of reference that often white parents do not give their children, which is what is the true horror that has happened in this country? How are we connected to that? because we do not raise white children with the skills to think critically about that. You see that whenever we want to talk about history, some white people are like, wait, oh wait, hold on. Are you talking about me? Do you mean that I'm bad? Shut down the entire conversation. Are you saying I'm bad that my heart is rotten and I hate black people? And we are seeing that now with these insane pushbacks on critical race theory, we are seeing Republican governors who have, who have built their entire party on individual liberties and suspicion of big government and standing up for censorship. We're seeing these governors betray all of their principles and pass critical race theory bans to use big government to curtail the individual liberties and censor teachers, right, because nobody raised them with the critical thinking skills needed to talk about white violence in history and not shut down by thinking that people are saying they themselves are bad.
2: Comedian and filmmaker CJ Hunt and City Lights host Lois Reitzes. We'll be right back with more of their conversation. This is WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Welcome back to City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. Today, we've been hearing from comedian and filmmaker C.J. Hunt discussing his new documentary, Neutral Ground, with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Here, Hunt and Wrights discuss his obvious love for teaching.
1: C.J., as I hear you speaking so passionately, I wondered, is your desire to teach now? You were teaching middle school, is that correct? Yeah. Is that as strong as your interest in a comedy career? Because <laughs> you seem so committed to making sure our educational system gets this right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, thank you. What a beautiful question. What a beautiful, piercing question. I, um, You know, I think maybe I just needed time to figure out how I would be a teacher. (laughs) There's an article written in my college newspaper that's like, I I believe the headline is Senior CJ Hunt Gives Up Comedy Dreams to Pursue Teaching. And it's all about me talking about The Daily Show, where now I work, you know, and me saying that even at its best, satire is only a form of entertainment and the actual more direct work is in classrooms. And so I, so I came to New Orleans right after that to become a teacher. And I was not a successful teacher because I was too young. I did not have enough training and I just wanted those kids to like me so much. And I think really good teachers are like, I don't care if you like me, this is what we're doing. This is what I need. So, you know, I stayed on and continued to teach comedy in schools for years after that. But yeah, I think that, I think that you're right, that this film has just enough comedy to keep people sitting with it. But the point is that it needs to be taught in schools that I'm going to spend the next couple of years of my life figuring out how we get this film in schools, how we use the platform of the film to uplift those thousands, hundreds of thousands of teachers who are doing a great job who are defying their governors, who are like, don't teach our kids history, and who are defying those cowardice of the cowards of lawmakers and actually teaching their kids the truth about slavery, teaching their kids about the promise of reconstruction, teaching their kids that our founding documents both give us a framework for freedom and enshrined slave hunting. We know from the United Daughters of the Confederacy that when people focus on getting a certain set of ideas in schools that that they can be successful enough that that becomes culture. And I think that is what we are trying to do now. We're trying to undo the UDC's work and put in our schools the truth about the history of this country. And if I can do that with a film, yeah, let's do it.
1: Well, one of the most powerful moments in this film is the portion about the Whitney Plantation. Would you talk about Dr. Ibrahim Asek and the goal of the Whitney plantation?
0: Most plantations do everything except talk about the reason that plantations existed. You know, if you have a friend who got married on a plantation, you should tell them to watch this film. You should tell them to visit the Whitney and that it is their duty. It would be like if you visited a a concentration camp in Germany, and all the tour guide wanted to talk about was the architecture, and the Nazis who lived there, and how they, what they preferred for dinner, you know, like, that is how we still talk about plantations in this country, as sites of beauty, not sites of forced labor, and sexual assault, and degradation, so the Whitney is a plantation that has been restored to look as close as it can to how it originally looked, except it is a museum to slavery. It is not a place where you're going to get married and have a fundraiser and you know, drink mint juleps. It is a place that talks unflinchingly about the past of slavery and the details of slavery. You know, it, it talks about the mortality rate of children, and you can see where those children lived, and it talks about what that work day looked like, and, and where people were punished, and this, the few sites that, you know, enslaved people had for freedom, and, and, you know, you can see places where people lived and died and ran, ran away, you know, and, and they look unflinchingly at that, and that's what Dr. Ibrahim said and Joy Banner and Ashley Rogers, they've built a space where you cannot look away. You hear the song Dixie over and over again in this film. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. And that is is the anthem of the South for a reason because the only way to believe in a beautiful, noble Grand South, the only way to believe that these monuments are somehow only about the individual soldiers and what was in their hearts, instead of a government that put on paper, we are seceding to protect slavery. The only way that you can engage in any of this stuff is, is, is if you look away, and the Whitney is a place that says you are not allowed to look away. What you see from that is not white children becoming depressed about America and hating their parents, is not white people feeling guilty and shutting down, but it is a place of deliverance, a place where black people can finally see themselves in their history, see themselves as people who have always resisted oppression and where white folks can see, okay, this is the truth. Finally, no one is hiding it from me. And I now have the tools to reckon with what that past was and what my duty is to justice in the present.
1: And Dr. Seck says something on screen that I feel like it encapsulates what you must see as the goal of your documentary. He says, the goal of the plantation is not to make people feel guilt or anger, but generate a spark of consciousness.
0: I love even hearing you say it again. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. He says, yeah, the, Whitney, the goal of the Whitney is not to make people feel angry or guilty. Yeah, it is to generate in them a spark of consciousness. And that's what I hope the film does. You know, I, I think, I think white, some, not all, but some, even many, white Americans are literally terrified about telling the truth about the past. It's like giving someone a black light in a hotel room and saying, enjoy your stay, turn on the black light to see how much is stained around you. If you gave me a black light, I would not want to turn it on because my (laughs) ability to be comfortable in a hotel room relies on ignorance of what has happened there in the past. For the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives. I do not want to turn on a black light. So I think people genuinely feel if I have to acknowledge that Robert E. Lee said that blacks are better off in slavery and the discipline of slavery is preparing them for a better life. If I have to acknowledge that he is a traitor to his country, do I also have to acknowledge that Andrew Jackson was known in his time as an Indian hunter? And participated in the genocide of Native Americans? Do I have to also acknowledge that George Washington employed the entire force of the federal government to hunt down an enslaved person? Do I have to acknowledge that the story that I tell about freedom in America is is deeply incomplete? And I think many white Americans, not all, but many, do not want to face the horror and the work implicit in acknowledging the truth. And I think this film, hopefully, gives you a space where you are able to acknowledge it and go, hey, <laughs> we spent 82 minutes looking at the truth and I did not die, I did not fall apart. You know, I'm surprised by how many people messaged us when we aired and said, I watched this with my 12 year old and my 12 year old was riveted. That we can handle the truth if we have the courage. And I hope the spark of this film makes you realize I can handle the truth. I can be honest. How do I give my kids' teachers access to the 1619 Project? What are other great books that I want my family to read? You know, who are speakers that I want my mostly white office to bring in so we can talk about where we can donate our money and what our duty is? That yes, I hope this film generates a spark that leads to consciousness. Shout out to Ibrahim Asak.
1: (laughs) Finally, you mentioned your connection to The Daily Show, and I see the wonderful Roy Wood Jr. is your executive producer. Mm -hmm. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to share his comment with our audience about when you need to insert some humor in this film? At which moments?
0: Those who know Roy Wood Jr. and know his standup, know that he is basically the Richard Pryor of our generation. You know, th- that may even be doing him a disservice. I think, I think history will look back on Roy Wood Jr. as, as a legend in terms of what he's able to do with his comedy and then what he's able to do as a black public intellectual and how much of his time on stage making us cry with laughter is actually the work of being a black public intellectual. He is one of the smartest, sharpest people that I've met. If you're looking for companion pieces to absorb while you're absorbing this film, I would not only recommend Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed, which is a New York Times bestseller, but I would recommend Roy Wood Jr.'s Father Figure, which is an album that you can get on Spotify and, you know, wherever you get albums. But in it, his first couple of words are, but if we take down the Confederate flag. How will we know who the good white people are? How will we know where to not stop for gas in the middle of the night? He goes on to talk about, you know, what it's like to work at a, a um, black and slavery museum in that album. You listen to that album and you can see, oh my God, I know why CJ waited until the film was good enough to ask his co-worker Roy, can you please be our executive producer because Roy is speaking truth to this country. In a way that I think is unparalleled, and he walks you into that place without you ever learning that you are being being walked into a difficult subject. So I needed Roy to help balance me out. Him and my co-writer James Hamilton, you know, worked together to really find places to be like, bro, we need to laugh here. If you just told us about <laughs> slavery and all of these documents and you're about to tell us about how white supremacists dismantled Reconstruction, you better come with a joke here. And you you see that, you know, you see Roy's voice even being the voice of the Arthur Ashe statue, lonely on, surrounded by Confederate monuments on Monument Avenue. That's Roy's voice going, y'all could have put me on any other street (laughs) that, you know, you got to sprinkle in the laughter so that people have have time to reset before all the other horror.
1: it was such an eloquent response, I was also trying to set you up for something. Roy said to you, "Man, this is not NPR."
0: Oh! Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I was being respectful. I mean, yes, yes, please. Disrespect
1: away. Disrespect
0: away. We we must lean into the uncomfortable. Yes, I mean, yeah. I I I was speaking broadly, but very specifically. Roy over and over again would go, bro. This is not NPR. (laughs) You, You better. You better switch out of that low register, smooth vocal fry NPR voice. And you better give me a solid joke here. You better talk about Alexander Stevens's ashy ass lips without going, you know, and we must reckon with who are we as a country to find out I needed to talk to you. Like like we, we, you know, so much of a film is about finding your own voice. And, yeah. you know, some of the most nuanced voices to move through history, I know, are NPR. So uh, when he's shocking me out of that and going, bro, you are a comedian. You are not, you know, Michael Barbaro on the New York Times Daily. You, you need to come with a joke here. That was helpful. And, and it is something I continue to think about. You are not NPR. <laughs>
2: Comedian, filmmaker, and Daily Show field correspondent C.J. Hunt discussing his new documentary Neutral Ground with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. The film airs this Sunday, July 11th on ATL PBA at 6 p.m. and 11 p.m. And you can learn more on our website wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear from Mastodon guitarist Bill Kelleher and find out why our hometown heavy metal heroes are going unplugged for a special acoustic set live-streamed from the Georgia Aquarium. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Summer Evans is our producer and Shelly Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes and you can follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights and archived interviews and shows are available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Thank you for listening to member supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.